Welcome to yet another episode of Close Talk. I am Connor McNamara Stratton, one of your co-hosts. As we mark this trudge towards death, I'm your other co-host, the unkillable Werner Herzog. This interminable <laughs> slog through Klaus talking. Yet another episode begins. And with each beginning, so too do we mark the inevitable end 20 to 40 minutes from now. This was neither planned nor related to the poem we were about to discuss. And That's true. I, I'm your, I will, you just said <laughs> another episode as though this was some sort of unending vlog. <laughs> uh, no, that, that was great. You did a great job. It made me think of noted Parks and Rec guest star Werner Herzog. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Mumley. We have a, another outstanding poem today. Um, it is called First Quarantine with Abdel Halim Hafez by Safia Ohilo. And she is a wonderful poet. I first read this poem in this chapbook called Asmarani that came out in 2016. And it's part of this really amazing thing that's, I think, supported by the African Book Fund or book series. It's called New Generation African Poets. And it's so like every year they do like six to eight new chapbooks by sort of emerging poets who are from Africa or the African diaspora. And uh, it's edited by Kwame Dobbs and Chris Abani. She also uh, came out with a full collection uh, called January Children, which came out in 2017 uh, through the African Poetry Series published by University of Nebraska Press. And she co-won the 2015 Brunel uh, African Poetry Prize, which notably the first winner of that prize was Warsin Shire, who is the poet who's on Beyonce's Lemonade. She describes herself on, the, on her site and elsewhere as Sudanese by way of Washington, D.C. And uh, just a bit of context. So Abdel Halim Hafez, who this uh, poem is sort of about, uh, was an Egyptian singer and actor who was sort of like the most, one of the most beloved Egyptian singers and Arabic singers in kind of the mid latish 20th century, like 50s through 70s, I think. And he's super popular. He's got sort of like uh, Frank Sinatra was old blue eyes and stuff. He had a couple of different nicknames, like the dark skinned Nightingale. Like he's he's really popular. He's sold like 80 million albums, which for reference, that's like Johnny Cash, Tom Petty, The Doors, Coldplay type area in terms of just album sales numbers. When he died, over a million people attended his funeral. And apparently four women committed suicide during, like jumped off buildings during the funeral. And like reportedly, and this is from another poem, up to 14 young women killed themselves when they heard that he died. I thought actually it'd be cool to play like a maybe a 15 second clip of them or something. <laughs> And I highly encourage everyone to go check him out. There's videos of him on YouTube. He's fantastic. Personally, I really love a lot of music from all over the Middle East. The Arabic tradition of music is like, really love it. 
uh, even if it's not your specific thing, I think you'll really enjoy his stuff. It's it's great. Definitely check it out. The other last thing that you should know is that he died when he was 47, so very young, because related to this parasitic waterborne disease that he had uh, contracted when he was 30. And that sort of is becomes relevant. Just a personal thing for me is that I always remember he died at 47 because that's the same age that one of my favorite guitarists, Rory Gallagher, also died far too young at. Uh, and I always think about the loss of two such great talents at not, it's not like 27, the way the famous like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison deaths are, but it's still like just way too young for people with their talents. And I always wonder what other uh, music they could have given us. First quarantine with Abdel Halim Hafez. And maybe it is too easy to blame mortality on our capacity for love. The slow death that is putting your breath in another's body, trusting your name in another mouth. But maybe it is smaller, say water. Sweat, yes, tears, yes, but also the Nile as a vein between our two home countries. Washing the red dust from my feet, yes, cooling the sear of a blood orange sun, yes, but also killing you the way only foul water can kill. And I do know how it is to be young and always sick at the mercy of something meant to immortalize us. The slow finish is in my heart, its syrup trickle. And I don't mean love, I mean my wet, crooked, actual heart wow yeah i love this is one of those poems where i read it and i like had no idea who this person was because it was like the first poem that i'd read by her and then the ending i'm just like holy buckets and i just get that the goosebump chilies and it's i don't know like i love that ending oh my god yeah um, we've talked about that poem feeling ending that some poems get and this is definitely one of those. And it's not like very great poems don't have to have that feeling happen, but there are some poems that kind of you get the sense are building to it or it happens. And and this is totally what I had the, the same thing. I think we talked about that with relation to what the living do first, which is another one that really just smacks you at the end with like, whoa. And uh, I mean, my wet, crooked, actual heart. I know. It's so brutal. God damn. Something that struck me about the end is the specific mention of wet because there's a tension between wetness and dryness, liquid and desert kind of throughout this. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the way that moves through. As you mentioned, Abdel Halim Hafez died because of a waterborne illness, which is specifically mentioned in this poem, but just if it stuck out to you and how you were thinking about the tension between wet and dry through this poem. Yeah, I mean, that. I think that's like the big thing or one of the big things. And so the beginning sets up this thing about what do we blame more, you know, for mortality? Why are we mortal? And the, the setup is maybe it's love, but then what she comes to maybe say is that maybe it's smaller. And what is smaller in this poem is water say water. One of the great things, just to preach about poems, is you can use 
is that the sort of uh, variety of connotations that you can exploit words and images for. And so I think what this poem does on a lot, a lot of different ways is, is use its, its images from like a ton of different angles. And water is a great example where on the one hand, water begins as a kind of abstract thing that you might blame for being mortal or something. That's how it sort of starts. And then we get into the literal, but also kind of the literal in a way that's like sort of immediately figurative. So it's like, say water, sweat, yes, tears, yes. And like, those are liquid in a literal sense, but the sweat and tears just kind of have sort of immediate figurative meaning where, uh, you know, grief and effort. Uh, sweat and tears are also salty water, which is naturally dehydrating, which kind of defeats the purpose of water in terms of life preservation and continuation. It's water leaving the body and it's water that if it was brought back into the body would actually further dehydrate you. That is a great point. Then we get, but also the Nile as a vein between our two home countries, which is such a good line for a lot of reasons that maybe we'll come back to. But initially, she's Sudanese by way of DC. He's an Egyptian singer. Sudan is south of Egypt. And so this is kind of, the Nile is serving as a kind of like connective liquid tissue between the speaker and this singer. On the one hand, that that seems maybe good. On the other hand, then it, it becomes the sort of, but also killing you the way only foul water can kill. And so the way water literally kills, it, like that you can blame your mortality for water in a literal sense, uh, is what finishes that, even as it begins in a more figurative way with the Nile as a vein between our two countries. And I do think throughout the poem that the energy is always in the interplay between the figurative and the literal in this poem in particular. So that gets to the end in such a good way because the slow finish is in my heart, it's syrup trickle, and I don't mean love, I mean my wet, crooked, actual heart. That definitely echoes that image, the Nile as a vein we get Vein is, it's, I mean, it's like this poetry 101 where it's a great way to think about a river visually, but then she brings it back and the vein has that heart connotation. And then there's that interplay between where she's like, I don't mean love because obviously the heart is that poetic stand-in for love so often. And so the writer is sort of very deliberately, consciously writing against that uh, reading of it. I don't mean love, I mean my wet, crooked, actual heart. And so when we get wet and crooked, we get that vein, that Nile in it kind of. Um, but we also get the that foul water. And we also, I think, do get love too, <laughs> even though she's saying that For we sure. don't. What's also interesting in the use of the Nile, at least I found it interesting, is that so often when you're talking about a river between two countries is often the dividing line. It's a natural barrier or boundary. And here it's specifically going against that and talking about a connective river between two countries. I thought that was striking because the Nile is not in fact a divide in the traditional sense between two countries. Like it's not a divide on the map, but it is a connection north to south on the map. And I just really liked that use of it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. 
Yeah, and so and going along with with the idea of water and wet and the literal and figurative, the other obvious thing that I've sort of touched on, but more to say is is that heart and love kind of tension where is the heart an actual literal thing is it a stand-in for love which is sort of the big thing that she has to write against generally in terms of poetry always doing that where heart is a cliche for that but also in the poem itself the way it begins you know and maybe it is too easy to blame mortality on our capacity for love the slow death that is putting your breath in another's body. And she's already making love into a very physical bodily image, the slow death that is putting your breath into another's body, which is so vivid. And you get the image of kissing and that kind of thing. And then to think about that as like your breath leaving you and you having no breath and that being the slow death is like, is really cool. Yeah, I also got really sucked into those couple of lines. Uh, and I was thinking it's something we touched on when we talked about sentence, but this is also a little bit about how the adoration of a fan works. You're giving over your emotion to another figure. And it is not really necessarily a destructive, but a one-sided relationship. You are giving over of yourself to whatever public figure you're venerating specifically in music. Like this is a lot of feeling tied up in Abdel Halim Hafez, which is, you know, sort of who this poem is addressed to the same way that I live and die every point of a tennis match with Roger Federer. Like I'm so present for the, like I'm, I'm particularly it's on my mind because we're recording this, you know, pulling back the kimono here about when this was recorded versus when it's released. We're recording this close to a year after Roger Federer won the Australian Open, which was incredible and crazy. But like, I watched that final for three and a half hours. Literally, I was more tense than he was, I have to assume, because he performed well and I would have been just a shattering pile of nerves. But like, I gave over of all of my emotions for three and a half hours to what was going on in this other dude's life. Like, that happened. And I feel like that's really what happens when you have this kind of huge emotional connection to someone, particularly in the context of being a fan. Yeah, it is very one-sided. And the one-sidedness is also in that like, your breath as a fan is what gives the person any status. They would be someone playing music in their bedroom if there wasn't a community of people who was propping them up and giving over of themselves. Their breath in another's body is is really what gives them life. Um, and particularly after they're gone, is that memory that lives on, that experience that she continues to have with the work, even after he's gone, is part of what helps him continue on as a, a prominent cultural figure. I want to take a brief sidestep. There's this interview that I found with um, Ohillo that I thought was interesting, specifically about Hafez. It's in Plowshares, the blog, and they were asking about it. And she says, my work for the most part has always been fueled by obsession. In moments when I'm not actively obsessed with something, I find it very difficult to write. And then the Abdel Halim thing started in my first semester of grad school where I was living in an apartment by myself for the first time. And I was feeling very far from home and reaching for things that reminded me of the feeling of being at home. Sudanese incense, Arabic music, curtains from my mom's house, old seasons of Arab Idol, all that. She was like, she kept finding herself going back to Halim. And 
She says, the whole tragic heartthrob thing. I'm very into that. Ha ha. <laughs> Which I think is very funny. But she says, like, sent me down a Google rabbit hole. And from there, I got into researching his life, watching the biopic several times a week, noticing when Arab Idol contestants would cover his songs. I was so far gone. Honestly, there was no way I couldn't write about him at that point, et cetera. And so I, this is a general question. I don't know. Like, I super relate to that because this happens to me like Number one, I'm good at developing interests. I will develop very strong interests in things and then sort of follow that to whatever logical conclusion there is, which is usually like reading as much as I physically can and watching as much as I can about it, right? So like I do this, I've got several different figures about whom I feel this way. And I really respond to someone calling it like, you know, the Abdel Halim Hafez thing, like, you know, the Roger Federer thing for me or the Bruce Springsteen thing for me, you know, like, yeah, it happens, right? Is there? I, does this happen to you? Okay. Well, first, I want to. I want to see on your Tinder profile a, a good at developing interests. I think that's gonna really bring them in for you. Yeah. I actually. I mean, hmm, there are things in my writing that I'm obsessive about, or at least I find myself always returning to in ways that I later can determine is an obsession. But I don't, I don't think I experience the fandom that much. Even people I love, I sort of, I'm always like periodically returning to them, but I don't have this kind of thing where I'm like, oh my God, I just discovered them. And now I'm going to spend the first three months only listening to them forever. And then also the rest of my life. <laughs> and I know that I don't because I wish that I would sometimes where I feel like a dilettante sometimes because I'm like, oh, I love them. And then they're like, oh, which collection of poetry do you love? And I'm like, well, I've only read half of one of their books, but I really love that part. <laughs> or I'm not good at rereading things. Anyway, I just know people who they just like, they find a book they love and then they read it like five times. Hell yeah, uh, I do that. All the time. Do that with TV shows too. I'm crazy about it. I love the repetition. I know, and I never do, but I'm so comforted by the repetition. I just love it. Yeah. You know why? It's because I have this anxiety about breadth, and I'm like, it's a way, when I watch something that I've seen before, I feel like I'm wasting my time because I'm like, I already know this and I need to expand my cultural vocabulary. I worry about that all the time too. See, I worry about being a dilettante for for the exact same reason because (laughs) I move from one, like I, I have an obsessive interest in Bruce Springsteen, but then like, I also developed a fairly obsessive interest in Roger Federer, which I draw the line at being like a professional interest. I don't care about his family life. I, I don't really keep up with that because like, <laughs> I'm not, that's my way of telling myself I'm not crazy. Uh, but there's a great <laughs> line that one of the characters in Big Little Lies has, uh, Madeline McKenzie, my favorite Ooh. character in that show. That's the Reese Witherspoon character. Oh yeah, she's uh, the best. Which is just incredible. I love it. Uh, but she has this great line where she says, you know, I love my grudges. I tend them. Uh, and that's sort of how I feel about my obsessions. Like, I love my obsessions. I tend them. I have many of them. I move from one to the next. Uh, but I feel like in the movement, like there are people who specialize in one discipline and they focus on it and they get really deep into it. And uh-huh. I worry that I am missing out by moving from one to the next. And I do rewatch stuff all the time. And I reread some of my favorite books. Like I've read Moby Dick like three times trying to figure out what's going on with all the whale stuff. Cause I love whales. Uh, 
But like, I worry that in spending all that time on it, I'm also not, I don't know, reading something else. Well, the great Oak Park River Forest High School English teacher, Glynis Canan said, there's no such thing as reading, there's only rereading. Or maybe someone else said that, but she said it as well. And I remember her saying it. Well, at any rate, I also love this middle stanza. And I do know how it is to be young and always sick at the mercy of something meant to immortalize us. I'm like of two ways about it. Because on the one hand, it's, it's also in this tension between literal and figurative. On the one hand, Hafez is always sick, literally, with this illness. And then also is a truly immortal figure as much as anyone could be and probably was affected by his fame greatly, you know. And so I'm trying to then read how to read the speaker claiming that also for herself because it starts, and I do know how it is to be young and always sick at the mercy of something meant to immortalize us. And I, my first reading of course, it's possible that El Hilo had chronic illness. I, I'm not sure about that. So that's definitely possible that there's a li literal meaning. But I also think there's a reading of the love being the immortalizing thing and the love of Hafez and being sick with love is kind of how I read that. But if that's true, it's just it's very interesting to pair those two together and for the speaker to be like, like, I know about your life because I love you so much. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's like very interesting. It is because it is a little confusing at first blush. Like, is she saying that literally it's like I was sick too. And so that's something I recognize in you that I can connect with, even though you're this like totally separate unattainable, or is it like the homesickness that she feels and this connection to Hafez is helping be a balm on that. It's, it's really interesting at the mercy of something meant to immortalize us is really a brilliant little turn of phrase, and I'm curious what exactly is going on there. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I don't know if this will exactly help, but some context that I got from the rest of the chapbook poems is that one thing that interests... So I think the homesickness is right, and we get that from the interview. Um, but another thing, too, is there's a lot about... He has these love songs for this like quote brown girl basically and as marani i think means like it's like either brownish or darkish kind of but there's a tension in one of the other poems sudan has a kind of it seems like liminal space between being arabic and being african and so being black or being brown and sudan i think is considered by a lot of egypt as black and not Arabic, or like aspiring to be Arabic. Tefez has these songs that are love songs to like a brown girl, and she sort of feels like he's allowing her space to be that brown girl, basically. I think that's a great point about Sudan versus Egypt, because Sudan was also an area that the various uh, Islamic empires did touch. And so there's a deep history of back into the age of the Egyptian empires, there's a lot of writings about trips that travelers took south on the Nile that they went into the Nubian kingdoms. And that's where like the notion of a Nubian princess of these darker skinned people that they would bring back to the uh, Egyptian courts and these peoples that they would talk about. There's another poem called Watching Arab Idol with Abdelim Hafez. I speak the language, but to learn the words, I learn an accent that is not mine. I learn Halim could be singing of a brown 
that is not mine. And there's a poem called Abdeline Hafez asks who the Sudanese are. And the first section is Northern Nile River Arabs, not genetically Arabs, Arabized Africans, mostly from the Nubian tribes, adopted Arab culture and language self-identified as Arabs. Arabs consider North Sudanese not Arabs, but Africans aspiring to change their race, insecure about their adopted cultural inheritance. Let's see. Oh, and then there's one called Why Abdel Halim. Uh, because he's gone, he can never tell me I am too much or not. He will never think me too dark or not dark enough. He sings an endless echoing note, and anyone can be the girl. He says brown girl and never says how brown. He's been dead my whole life. He's used up. He's eulogizing home. He's eulogizing my mother as a girl, not yet filled up with children. He sings and she's the brown girl. He dies before she's hurt. He dies before belonging. He belongs to no one country, same. He belongs to no one language, check my mouth. He belongs to no one. In this way, he never leaves. Sort of, I think, articulates the stakes of this sort of figure in a poetic way. Getting to the poem specifically, one thing I do like stylistically is sort of the spokenness of it, I guess. So there's a couple moments. It's interesting how the poem starts in kind of mid-statement. It begins, and maybe it is too easy to blame mortality on our capacity for love, which sort of implies that somehow she or we have been having this conversation before the poem started and the and is thinking that, but we're like picking it. It's like overhearing midway. I think it's also worth noting that the and is an ampersand, not the word and, which makes it feel even more like you're just sort of thrown in to the middle of something going on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then there's these moments, so, but maybe it is smaller. Say water, sweat, yes, tears, yes. Uh, and then washing the red dust from my feet, yes. Cooling the sear of a blood orange sun, yes. But also killing you. The repetition of yes and that sort of like say water. I, I'm not exactly sure the effect as it relates to the content, but. It has the effect of making the poem itself sort of more happen in real time as the speaker says sweat, then confirms it with yes. As they say, tears confirms it with yes. A, it's like rhythmically nice, um, but it's also, now that I'm thinking about it, I think that helps the ending a little bit because there is this kind of in the moment navigation, I think, because between this like figurative and literal and sort of like trying to articulate this idea of love and stuff. And so the saying itself is an act that's important. And so when the end happens, uh, and I don't mean love, I mean my wet, crooked, actual heart, that sort of moment of I don't mean and then I mean is in that same it's happening as it's happening. Where there is the realization is reached. Yeah, yeah. And and the speaker is sort of aware as you read it that you might be reading it in this way and the speaker does not want you to read it in that way, but read it in this way. I think that's important for the poem because it also wants both and. Because it, it wants 
the heart to be love. It wants the heart to be the metaphor even, but it only can get away with having the heart be literal and the heart be symbolic and say that the heart is not symbolic, but have it still be symbolic. If the saying itself is like explicitly said or performed or enacted so that we read it less as a statement, but more as this voice that's sort of working through something. I like that a lot. I think that's a really interesting take on that end. I also like the the syrup trickle because that gets at the like over sweetness that a lot of traditional uses of heart in poetry go to. It's like, oh, it's so sweet and <laughs> just this horrible, treacly, syrupy, awful thing. It's like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what's real. Also, the last part, the title, I think is very interesting. And it makes sense to put this as the first quarantine. So this we are imagining the speaker with Hafez. Hafez is sick and possibly contagious and so needs to be quarantined. And that makes that foul water that can kill more resonant. But it's also just the speaker and Hafez, you know, in this little quarantine. It's very insular in a way that that other settings wouldn't be. Yeah, there's a there's a definite aloneness between the two of them they're just they're connecting independent they're quarantined together away from the world should we read again yeah let's hear it again all right first quarantine with abdel halim hafez and maybe it is too easy to blame mortality on our capacity for love the slow death that is putting your breath in another's body Trusting your name in another mouth. But maybe it is smaller. Say water. Sweat. Yes. Tears. Yes. But also the Nile as a vein between our two home countries. Washing the red dust from my feet. Yes. Cooling the sear of a blood orange sun. Yes. But also killing you the way only foul water can kill. And I do know how it is to be young and always sick at the mercy of something meant to immortalize us. The slow finish is in my heart. It's syrup trickle. And I don't mean love. I mean my wet, crooked, actual heart. Hey, this is Connor McNamara Strand just saying thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please write a review or rate us on iTunes. And you can keep up with us at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. My Twitter is at hot sauce box and Jack's is at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems or have a suggestion for what we should talk about in the future, please tweet at us or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.